Welcome back to the Cold War Show. How are you, Ray? Great. How are you doing? I'm great. Um, we are about to interview one of the, I guess, preeminent uh, history writers on mm-hmm. the planet, uh, Andrew Roberts. Uh, he His books always tend to end up on the New York Times bestseller lists, whereas most uh, Historians who write books are lucky to sell a few thousand copies. Um, he, he, uh, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing him a few years ago on my Napoleon show with David Markham when Andrew had his book out on Napoleon. And now he's got a new mega 1,000-page biography out on Winston Churchill. Now, of course, um, we have spent God knows how many hours talking about Churchill mm-hmm. on this show over the last couple of years. So I thought it would be really good to get Andrew on and get his perspective on some of the issues that uh, I have about Churchill, as you know, mm. over the years. Um, whilst I have a, a certain admiration for, for Churchill, I also think he was a deplorable uh, human being in many ways. And um, I, I get the sense that Andrew is a little bit more fond of him right. than I am. So I thought it'd be an interesting opportunity to uh, just ask him for his perspective on some aspects of Churchill's character that uh, trouble me. Yeah. But one of the things I certainly enjoyed about his book was that he does kind of zoom out, give you the full picture. He has a lot of new material that hasn't been seen before. So I was very excited to read his book and I'm very excited to talk to him. Yeah, one thing I learned from the book was that Churchill was a redhead, and I think that pretty much, uh, you know, as I, I'm married to a redhead and I have a four-year-old yeah. redhead, it pretty much explains everything you need to yeah. know about Churchill's Ginger. character, yeah. really. <laughs> All right, uh, here, uh, let, me, let me dial him in and we'll have a chat. Our guest today, Andrew Roberts, has a new book out on Winston Churchill, Churchill Walking with Destiny that the New York Times has called the best single-volume biography of Churchill yet written. Andrew, I want to start by asking, do you believe in destiny and do you think it was your destiny to write this book? (laughs) Good question. I don't believe in destiny, no. um, I'm afraid I haven't got that kind of uh, uh, mind at all. I've I've got far too prosaic a mind, really, to uh, believe that people are predestined to um, to do anything in particular. Um, but uh, Churchill did, and that's the important thing. Uh, he certainly had this sense that um, a sense which he told people about, really, from the age of sixteen onwards, that uh, that he had a destiny to save London and save England, and uh, and ultimately um, the empire too. Cam, if I could ask a follow-up question. Um, So I I find this amazing because I agree with you. I don't believe in uh, fate or destiny, but I'm just trying to make sense of that because here's Churchill spending most of his life believing in it, having this absolute faith in himself, in his destiny. And so I guess when he is made the leader of his country at this very dark time, does he take it in stride? I mean, was he downhearted? Was he... uh, was he um, thinking that there's a decent chance his nation is not going to make it? You know, obviously France is about to fall. Or does he just go, yep, yep, this was a part of what I was supposed to do. And it's going to be even more dramatic when, because of the fact that I've taken over now and my country is in such a state. Well, on the day that he um, became prime minister, he told his, uh, his bodyguard that he feared that it was too late. Mm. And that, um, and that, therefore, he wasn't going to be able to um, to make much of a difference. It, of course, happened on the afternoon, early evening of the tenth um, of May, nineteen forty, which coincidentally had been the very same day that that morning at dawn, Hitler had uh, unleashed Blitzkrieg in the west, inv- invading Holland and Belgium and Luxembourg. And so, it might very well have been too late. However, eight years later, when he was writing his um, war memoirs, at the end of the first volume of his war memoirs, he said, uh, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. So um, although he did have this, as uh, I mentioned earlier, this very strong sense of destiny, he also felt that um, there was a very good chance we were going to lose. 
Now, this was not, of course, something he vouchsafed to Parliament or the press or the king or um, those around him. He was um, extremely good at, uh, at uh, keeping those, um, those sort of defeatist feelings uh, under control. But he would have been, frankly, um, deranged if he hadn't at some stage thought about them. Right. Mr. Roberts, as someone who has read several of the 1,000-plus books on Churchill, um, can you tell us about some of the new sources of information in your book that sets it apart from so many of the others? Yes, you're right. There have been actually 1,009 biographies of Churchill written. Mine is the 1,010th. And um, that would seem to be completely ridiculous and hubristic of me to impose another book on the public. But fortunately, over the last 10 years, there's been a cornucopia of new sources that have come out. Um, I've been allowed to be the first Churchill biographer to, um, uh, to be allowed to read King George VI's diaries. And um, those have been fascinating and, uh, and extremely helpful because the King met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War. And uh, they had lunch together, and uh, Churchill trusted the king with all of the great secrets of the Second World War, such as the nuclear secret and the Enigma decrypts uh, secret, and uh, where they were going to attack and when, and so on. And um, on top of that, we've also had the verbatim accounts of all the war cabinet meetings, which have come out in the last six years. Um, We've had, in the last four years, since I started uh, researching this book, we've had the... um, diaries of Ivan Meisky. Um, there have been 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at uh, Churchill College archives, uh, which um, are from people who knew Churchill and worked with him, including two of his children. So there has been this, uh, this great avalanche of new information, which has allowed me, I think pretty much every page of this book has got a quotation that won't have appeared in any Churchill biography before. Hmm. Well, speaking of quotations, you'll have to forgive me, Andrew, because as an Australian, it's my patriotic duty to be a little sceptical about British icons, Um, even though as a fellow cigar enthusiast and fan of Napoleon, I'm kind of prone to want to like Churchill. But the more I've read about him over the years, and we've talked about him a lot on this show, it, it, I find it harder and harder to like him as a as a man. And as I'm sure you're aware, over the last decade or so, there's been a, a number of revisionist histories pointing out some of the darker aspects of his personality and career, like the statement of his to the Peel Commission in 1937, I do not admit for... i sorry, I should do it in my church voice. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. Please save your applause for later. The Academy will be in touch, I'm sure. Obviously, statements like that sound pretty bad today. And and I believe even some of his contemporaries thought he was pretty extreme. Stanley Baldwin was warned by cabinet colleagues not to appoint him because his views were antediluvian. Even Lord Moran, his doctor, once said Winston thinks only of the colour of their skin. But how do you think we should pass statements like that? And there's a lot of them that we have in the books from Churchill, a lot of quotes that are very harsh to modern ears. How, how do you think we should pass them from our perspective in the 21st century? Well, they're clearly not just in the revisionist works that you um, mentioned. They're in my book, too, Um, certainly both of those ones that you've just quoted. It's very important that one shouldn't uh, um, write a hagiography of Churchill. You've got to see him in the round, and you've got to see him in his own own age. He was born at the same time that that Charles Darwin was around. And people, unfortunately, and we know uh, how how today, how uh, ludicrous and obscene it is to the races in terms of hierarchy, but um, people did in the, um, in the post-Darwinian uh, scientific world, it was considered a scientific fact. So um, I don't, I'm not in the slightest bit surprised that he thought that about Native Americans or, uh, or the Aboriginal people of, um, of Australia. I'd have taken it entirely for granted. In fact, it would have been extraordinary if he hadn't. 
If I can follow that up real quick, I was watching one of your interviews and you were saying that at the time, they this belief of uh, racial superiority was supposedly, as far as they knew, based on science and it wasn't just out-and-out out racism. They thought they thought they were backing this up with science or with strong evidence. That's right. People like Huxley and the rest, um, had this uh, racial theory, which came very much from the Darwinian concept of uh, of the um, uh, perfectibility of the species, as it were, things that um, today, as I say, we, we think of as an entirely disgusting concept. But um, you might as well ask what Oliver Cromwell thought of socialized medicine as to uh, complain that people in the 1870s, born in the 1870s were racist. So would you sorry would you extend that same sort of logic to Hitler and his views on the Jews? No, of course not, because the huge difference between Winston Churchill and his concept of imperialism was that he should we should attempt to i e we the British should attempt to uh, to take care of the native peoples and to advance them, whereas Adolf Hitler wanted to annihilate anybody who he thought was uh, was below the Aryan race in his terms. So the two aspects, the two attitudes towards imperialism were so diametrically opposed that they have absolutely nothing whatsoever in common. Mm. Apart, apart from a... Uh, sorry, apart from a view that uh, non-Aryans or non-white people are somehow inferior, you're saying that the, the, they both thought that they were inferior, but the, what they wanted to do about that differed. Is that right? Precisely, because one had a, a Christian ethic and the other had an anti-Christian ethic. If I could take it in a slightly different direction. So uh, we spent like 30 hours on this podcast discussing Yalta and Potsdam. And I wanted to get your impression about um, Churchill's relationship with FDR and later with Truman. When it comes to FDR, you, you make the point in your book that they have a lot in common. They seem to get along um, personally but as far as their work, as far as their uh, their uh, priorities um, from as being leaders, that seems to have been very different, and it seems to have altered their relationship as World War II goes on, because obviously they have different agendas. Um, does their working relationship allow their personal friendship to survive the war as it goes on? It changed very much, I think, by the October or so, certainly... Um by the uh, autumn of 1944, as you say, the, uh, the overall uh, views of the two men were, and, and, their, and their attitudes towards grand strategy were diverging to such an extent that there are over 200 more letters from Winston Churchill, letters and telegrams from Winston Churchill, uh, to FDR than there are replies from FDR. Mm. Um, there were disagreements over lots of... Uh, Serious and substantial aspects of the um, of the war at that point. You also see it, of course, at the end of that year with regard to policy towards Greece, um, and to a lesser extent, uh, the occupation of Italy. And so, it's a very um, difficult moment. By the time you get to uh, to Yalta in um, in the February of 1945, where um, Churchill is under no illusions that uh, the British Empire is much the junior partner. Um, vis-a-vis the United States, not just in terms of production of, of material and number of, of uh, men in the European fighting in the European theatre, uh, but also, of course, economically overall. In the calendar year 1944, just to go back to the production um, mm-hmm. idea, it was, um, well, the British produced 28,000 warplanes and the Russians and Germans 40,000 warplanes each. The United States produced 98,000 warplanes, so almost as much as the rest of the world put together. And so, of course, they were therefore going to have the whip hand when it came to uh, decisions of strategy. And they didn't uh, like the, um, uh, the Churchillian strategy of trying to get as east as uh, far east as possible in order to forestall the uh, Red Army coming westwards. And, um, and so they, which is quite within their rights, uh, blocked it. I was just going to say, speaking of his relationship with FDR, I've always been fascinated by FDR's son, Elliot's um, 
telling of, of the story between when the two men meet off of Newfoundland in 1941, where they drafted the Atlantic Charter document. And it seems like they had um, very different views on the future of the British Empire. Uh, Churchill, on one hand, wanted to maintain the the empire. I think he said something like he, he didn't uh, take the job of prime minister to liquidate it. Um, Something to that effect. FDR, on the other hand, seemed to be using the liquidation of the empire as part of the bargain for the US getting involved in supporting England. Um, you know, how do you think Churchill dealt with the knowledge that he was going to have to take steps to dismantle the empire? Well, I, I think your um, your quotation there is the apposite one. It was in. Uh November of 1942, that he said at a Mansion House speech, um, I did not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. And he didn't, um, neither in his first um, time as prime minister uh, from 1940 to 45, or subsequently, much more extraordinarily, really, because India by then had gone, uh, in his uh, 1951 to 55 Indian summer premiership, did he actually um, allow any part of the British Empire to be alienated from the crown? So it was something that mattered to him enormously. I mean, he wasn't a Christian himself, uh, although he accepted um, most of the Christian ethics, but he really was uh, somebody who believed in um, the empire as almost a a sort of secular religion for him. Mm. And so the dawning realization, as as, as you mentioned, that Roosevelt certainly didn't have any... Um, warm feelings towards the empire, and why should he? He was an American. The uh, whole point of America was that it escaped the British Empire itself. Um, When it became clear to him by by 1942-43, especially when the Americans started to um, uh, make suggestions about the future governance of India and uh, the treatment of Gandhi, um, who was in jail, of course, in 1942, um, this came as um, not a shock to Churchill, but as a, uh, as a spur, really, to him to try to keep the Americans out of the um, uh, areas of the world that, um, that Britain still had influence in. And you see this very much with his Bay of Bengal strategy in 1943 and 44, where he preferred to fight Japan um, in areas where the British had had an empire, places like Burma and and uh, Singapore, recapture Hong Kong and so on, rather than the island hopping um, in the Pacific, which, uh, which did actually um, have a, uh, a much more sort of straight line approach to, um, to winning the war. Sorry, Ray, speaking of India, can you, can you talk about his uh, feelings towards Gandhi? Um, the impression that I get is he didn't have a lot of time for Gandhi. <laughs> I think that's one of the, the great <laughs> understatements of the podcast. Uh, there, I'm, being gener- I'm, uh, I'm being generous to, to him, Andrew. <laughs> no, he, um, but of course, before, um, before the war, he made the, uh, the famous, the infamous, the notorious uh, speech when he was opposing the um, self-government of India in, uh, in the early parts of the 19th 19- 30s, when in 1931 he described uh, Gandhi as a half-naked fakir um, striding up the, uh, the front steps of the, um, of the Viceregal Palace in order to negotiate with, uh, with Lord Irwin, later Lord Halifax, um, the Viceroy. And um, he very much uh, thought that, uh, that Gandhi was, of course, a danger and a threat to the Empire, but also he thought of him as a, as a bit of a fraud. And he, uh, he read various statements of, um, of Gandhi's, including the one in May 1940 congratulating Hitler on, on looking like he was going to win the war, and the various remarks he made about Mussolini, uh, positive remarks about Mussolini, and the various, which, of course, Churchill was responsible for making few, a few of those himself, uh, and various other remarks that, um, that Gandhi had made about the Jews giving themselves up to the Germans' um, better sensibilities. And he thought the man was just a, a, a con man, effectively. Mm. 
Uh, again, I'm going to take the conversation in a, in a different direction. If I could take this conversation and add it to the conversation, the last conversation you had with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, with Cameron, um, you, in your book you say that Churchill had a bust of Napoleon on his desk, and he wanted to write a book about Napoleon before he died. Um, why do you think he admired the man so much? And if you could compare the two for us, please. Um, and it didn't stop there, by the way. He also wanted Charlie Chaplin to make a, uh, a film of Napoleon, um, which uh, would, would have been one of the more strange, um, strange uh, moments in the uh, history of 20th century filmmaking, I think. Um, he, uh, he had a great library of Napoleon books. Um, as you say, he always had a, um, a bust of Napoleon on his desk. I think that it's a combination of things. First of all, the uh, Napoleon's ambition... Uh, but, of course, in Napoleon's case, and indeed in Churchill's case, it was allied to tremendous talent. He saw um, Napoleon as somebody who was another man of destiny, who believed in his own destiny, his own star. And uh, that, I think, was something else that um, he admired about Napoleon. What he used to say about Napoleon was that um, he managed to uh, to save the best bits of the French Revolution, the um, the parts to do with meritocracy and equality, uh, without um, without um, destroying them. And uh, you know, we can argue, as we have done, I think, Cameron, over <laughs> for some hours in, in the past, about the extent to which Napoleon might be um, uh, considered innocent or guilty of any of that. But what can't be argued is that um, Churchill was a huge admirer. And I think, along with Clemenceau and, to a lesser extent, David Lloyd George, certainly Pitt the Younger, um, and also his own great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, uh, Napoleon was a role model for Churchill. Mm. I think you and I agreed far more about Napoleon than we probably would about <laughs> Churchill, Andrew, from my recollection of your book. <laughs> yes, and, and also um, David, I think. Uh, uh, David was a, a Markham also... Uh, tended to have that um, that stance. As oh, well. well, you know, I think David uh, has a religious uh, view of <laughs> Napoleon. Uh, perhaps a little bit akin to, I think, your view of Churchill. He's, he's, he certainly puts him on a, on a pedestal. No, 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 you see, that's completely wrong. I don't know, absolutely not. I, I recognise when Churchill makes terrible mistakes and say so when he gets women's suffrage wrong or the gold standard wrong, or the abdication crisis, or, uh, of course, you as an Australian, I'm sure this was going to come up before too long, the Dardanelles uh, catastrophe. It was when my Churchill next question indeed. <laughs> there you go, there you go, absolutely. <laughs> um, when Churchill makes these catastrophic uh, errors, I, uh, I say so in my book. This is not in any way a worship, um, worshipful book. Well, let, let's talk about that a little bit. In fact, I think when we did a mini biography at the beginning of our Cold War podcast on Churchill, I actually gave him a little bit of a pass on the Dardanelles campaign. Um, but I'd love to get your perspective on whether or not it was good strategy that just didn't work or bad strategy. Can you give us a quick summary on it from your perspective? Um, I think that the overall idea... Um, was a good one. If we had got the Royal Navy through the Dardanelles, assuming that the Turks had not just evacuated um, Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and uh, and just sort of left it, um, I think it could have knocked the the uh, Ottoman Empire out of the Central Powers, and uh, and that would have been immensely helpful. Obviously, it would have been one of the, certainly the best, greatest coup of um, of 1915. Um, but Churchill is responsible for, um, for so many things that, that did go wrong, um, not least, of course, after the, um, the six ships were sunk on the 18th of March 1915, allowing the whole thing to go onto the, onto the land. Then allowing so long, um, six weeks, five weeks, sorry, to go by before the landings of the 25th of um, April, and then all the problems, of course, that, um, that uh, followed after that and constantly supporting extra troops going in, um, even though it had pretty much became, become clear, I think, uh, by the late summer of 1915 that, it, that there was no hope on the Gallipoli Peninsula. So I think that Churchill is hugely to, um, to be blamed for it. And, uh, of course, there are 157,000 Allied casualties. 
But what I don't think is that he was the only person who can be blamed for it, which you which you do tend to get in some of the more um, uh, the more um, critical biographies of Churchill. There were lots of other people involved in the in the in the disaster, and um, I think it's fair also to blame. Um, several members of the War Cabinet for having been so enthusiastic about it at the beginning, too. Um, Lord Kitchener for having put in the 29th Division, then taken it out, then put it back in, and then taking it out again, which was uh, obviously very bad news. The man on the spot, um, both of the men on the spot, both Carden and uh, Admiral um, Rebic, were, um, were badly to blame. Stopford, General Stopford was pretty useless. Frankly, there, there's, there's a lot of, um, of uh, um, blame to, um, to push around with that uh, campaign. I don't think Churchill should have got uh, all of it. Maybe the lion's mm. share, but not all of it. Mm. Fair enough. Well, uh, since we're on the topic of um, mistakes that Churchill made, one, I would certainly like to get you to expand on that, about how he did seem to remember mistakes that he made. But uh, if I could bring up another one, the Bengal famine of 1943, uh, he said some pretty harsh things about Gandhi, about the Indians at the time. Um, But you do make the point of giving a much wider, broader picture of the famine and that it wasn't just all about Churchill. Could you talk about those two things, please? Well, yes, it was a, uh, it was a huge typhoon that hit, the Bengal coast in October 1942, which destroyed the rice crop. Um, and um, it, this had, of course, happened before in history, but, um, but before they were able to use gr- rice grown elsewhere um, in places like Thailand and Burma and uh, Malaya, which, of course, were all under Japanese occupation by then. Mm. So, um, And you also had Japanese submarines in the, um, in the Bay of Bengal, and you also had... Uh, actually, in 1942, you had had um, uh, Japanese ships shelling eastern Indian um, harbors. So, you know, it's one of the problems, I think, with the way in which the Bengal famine has been uh, written about by some um, scholars who are highly critical of Churchill, is they sort of take out the whole sort of Second World War aspect of it, as though they treat it almost as though it were a, um, a domestic Indian issue of peacetime, which it most certainly wasn't. You also have lots of other um, problems all coming at the same time with regard to uh, to the internal movement of, of grain anywhere near the, um, the the parts of Bengal that were most hit by the famine, not least because the cyclone, as well as destroying the rice crop, also destroyed the railways and roads that you could get famine in. Churchill did um, ask for um, for help from the um, from the Americans, Canadians, and Australians. The Australians were tremendously generous. Um, I think over 150,000 tons uh, mm. of food were um, were delivered. But uh, you know, I mean, it was a um, it was a hellish situation. And what I don't accept is that because Churchill made these appalling. Um, uh, to our modern ears, you know, outrageous politically incorrect remarks about how he disliked Indians. That therefore he he wanted three and a half million of them to die, and that just doesn't compute in my uh, in my sense of the man. Okay. Relief would do no good. Indians breed like rabbits and will outstrip any available food supply. Statements like that, which sound yeah, horrendous. Absolutely. They do. And yet, they're made in the same. Uh, when you go to the um, to the cabinet minutes, they're made in the same um, meetings. To and these are these are to um, to the Secretary of State for India, uh, Leo Amory, who he he twits and and is constantly sort of you know teasing in an unpleasant way. Um, as um, as also when the you look at the actual conclusions of the cabinet, um, he then is writing to FDR asking for for grain for India. Mm-hmm. You have to put the, what he says against what he does. And that's not just the case with the Indian famine, of course. There's a, there are plenty of times in his career when he says one thing and, and does another. I think his, uh, we might be getting onto it later, but his whole attitude towards, um, towards Europe after the Second World War is another case in point of that. You know, just speaking of Amory, the 
Secretary of State to India, I got a quote from him where he said, on the subject of India, I didn't see much difference between Churchill's outlook and Hitler's. Yeah, right, a completely outrageous remark to make, considering what Hitler was actually deliberately doing uh, in, uh, in, in Europe at the time and what uh, Churchill was uh, at least attempting to avoid in, uh, in India at the time. You have, mm. to, you have to factor this in with a, a, a long, angry, ill-tempered, um, uh, almost half a lifetime of, um, of battles between Leo Amory and, uh, and Winston Churchill. Amory, of course, the great, uh, the great leader of the Imperial Federation movement uh, in the 1920s, and Churchill, the great leader of the free trade movement, had crossed swords ever since they were at Harrow together and Churchill wow. pushed Amory into the swimming pool. It was, <laughs> it, they were not friends by any means. Right, long-standing rivalries. Ray and I have a relationship like yeah. that. In fact, um, <laughs> so no. um, as a as a someone of Irish uh, descent, although quite a little bit removed, as a Riley, um, uh, yeah, I want to talk about his uh, earlier career as colonial secretary in the 1920s, when he unleashed the black and tan thugs on Ireland's Catholic civilians who were fighting for their independence. He said things about the Irish, like crush them with iron and unstinted force or try to give them what they want. Um, he, he, he didn't have much time for the Irish uh, as well as uh, some of the uh, non-white races. Can you talk about his attitudes towards my uh, countrymen? I, I disagree with you about, um, about Irish people in general. I think he was... Uh, he, he was um, he was he, he liked Irish people. He didn't have any problem with them as a uh, as a race. It's just the uh, the ones who were trying to, as I mentioned earlier about the British Empire being a secular religion for him. The ones in the Irish Brotherhood and later the IRA who were attempting to um, to separate Ireland from the United Kingdom. Those were the people that he was uh, he, he felt a, a deep hatred for. Not least because they'd assassinated. Um, uh, a close friend of his, and somebody who uh, uh, was in his um, other club. He was a man who um, held these um, uh, these battles to be winnable, uh, and in that he was completely wrong. There was simply no way after the First World War that we were going to be able to keep Ireland in the um, uh, in the Commonwealth and Empire in the same way that uh, that Churchill wanted to have happen. He inherited, of course, from his father, who'd, fit, who'd, who'd said the notorious words, uh, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right, a, um, a intransigent view when it came to fighting in, uh, in the South. He really did believe that it wasn't millions, as you say, who were, um, who were fighting for their independence. He believed that it was a few thousands who could be defeated by the black and tans, and in that he was completely wrong. He was also very wrong, as I say, state in my book, uh, to unleash the black and tans in the first place, because the way in which they uh, brutalized um, ordinary Irish people uh, in places like Cork, where they burnt down half the city virtually, um, was only ever going to radicalize the, um, the rest of the Irish people. So it was something that was a, um, a mistake, both conceptually and actually in its implementation. Sorry, Ray, let me let me uh, just follow up on that. So I guess one of the challenges I have with Churchill in general um, is this feeling, I'm not saying from your book in particular, but just this feeling of the, the sort of worship of the man. Um, are you saying that it's... Um, it is time for us to take a more balanced view of Churchill, that we should understand that, like all great men, including Napoleon and, and Caesar and Alexander, and I would argue Stalin and Hitler, we have to see them as human beings, as rational actors, and not, uh, in this case, uh, indulge in uh, hero worship. Profoundly flawed um human being. He, uh, he was the first to admit to his mistakes, of course. He said to his wife in 1916, he was fighting in the trenches after having screwed up everything when it came to uh, the Dardanelles, um, I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. 
And he did learn from his mistakes. <laughs> After the Dardanelles, and um, certainly during the Second World War, he never once overruled the chiefs of staff. And that's a proper attempt to learn from an error. Um, he learned from plenty of other errors too. But, um, oh, he was a, he was a profoundly flawed um, man. But when it came to the three really important decisions that any politician had to take in the 20th century um, about what to do with uh, uh, about um, Prussian imperialism, uh, then Nazi um, aggression, and then the Soviet Union, in each of those cases, he got it right. And he, in two of the cases, actually got it right before anybody else and almost um, without anybody else agreeing. So it was a, um, overall, I think it was a, a tremendously impressive act of foresight on these three big occasions that uh, saves his reputation and, uh, and makes him a, a great force for good in the world. But sorry, Ray, I'm going to interject again, but let, let's uh, talk about his attitude towards uh, the Bolsheviks and socialism in general, if we can. My recollection is that he was anti-socialism from the very get-go, like uh, after the revolution in 1917, pretty much straight off the bat. Um, he he had a deep hatred, and I think you, you mentioned his... Um, Love early love for Mussolini earlier on um, when he said, your movement has rendered a service to the whole world after he'd met him in Rome. Um, because of M- Mussolini and, and the fascist's basic position on stomping on socialism. I, I always got the sense that his hatred of socialism, you know, it, it, it predates, obviously, Stalin by, uh, or Stalin coming to power by a decade or so. What do you think was at the core of his uh, abhorrence of socialism? Well, I think you're, you're mixing up socialism and communism here, or Bolshevism, as he would have called it. Uh, he was perfectly capable of accepting um, legitimate parliamentary socialism in the sense of the British Labour Party, uh, of course, and um, and he didn't mistake that for the kind of um, totalitarian uh, Bolshevism that he quite rightly, in my view, saw in 1917 as something that was going to lead to the deaths of uh, tens of millions of people. And so he was the first and most uh, and most outspoken, most virulent. Um, anti-communist of them all. And um, when one looks at the, uh, at the numbers of people who've died as a result of communism in the 20th century, I think he was right. It would have been great if he'd been able to strangle Bolshevism in its cradle, uh, as he put it, but it was completely impossible. Um, no amount of British soldiers who didn't want to go and fight in Russia anyway after the First World War for obvious reasons would have been able to have prevented the horrors of, um, of Lenin and Trotsky. Uh, which predated, as you say, by at least a decade, the horrors of Stalin. And uh, so I think overall his, uh, his assumptions to do with Russia tended to be right. The ones that, the big problem, of course, with him and Russia is that he changed his mind um, at least five times. He was very, very anti, as you mentioned earlier, the Bolshevik Revolution. Then immediately in 1941, he changed his mind and became um, pro uh, Russian and, and uh, he actually brought in an alliance with Russia without even consulting the cabinet. Then in um, 1946, with the Iron Curtain speech, he became very anti-Russian. Then in 1949, once the Russians had exploded their nuclear bomb, he became very dovish. He was constantly changing his uh, mind, but I would argue each time on um, with national interest at the back, rather than the back of his mind, rather than uh, any kind of sense of um, doing it for his own short-term political gain. I seem to recall that during his uh, election campaigning in 1945, he made some speeches where he uh, compared the Labour Party to the Bolsheviks. But I don't have my notes for that in front of me. I remember he said some pretty harsh things. Now, this isn't right. working, I'm afraid. I'm not- Mr. Roberts, just to let you know, I think, I think we all agree that it's preferable that you can hear the American and not the Australian. I think that's probably best. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, I would... I, I, well, my book at the moment is number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. Okay. Uh, so I don't know whereabouts it is in, uh, on the Australian. <laughs> I wouldn't imagine it's anywhere near there. Okay, well, that, yeah, that, that supports my claim. Um, be, because I would be remiss, because I have a separate show on, on the history of World War II, one of my most favorite parts of your book 
in a very ironic way, was Churchill's warnings in the 1930s. I mean, you make a very good point because of his pro-Jewish stance, because he had seen radicalism before. If you could just spend a couple of minutes and, and talk us through the 1930s, I mean, it must have been absolutely frustrating for this man to be sounding the bells of alarm and no one is taking him seriously. Well, that's right. Um, Partly, of course, it was self-inflicted because he had, um, on many occasions, really, um, made so many um, errors of judgment, as we were discussing earlier, Mm -hmm. um, that people did think of him as being being a warmonger, and they did think of him as, uh, as having bad judgment. And therefore, why should they listen to him when, he came, when it came to his warnings about Hitler and the Nazis? It was a bit like the sort of the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> um, however, in uh, Hitler's case, there, re- there really was a wolf. And, um, and so you're right. He was tremendously frustrated about uh, the way in which his warnings weren't listened to. Um, not least because he was able to back them up with uh, intelligence reports that were leaked to him about the size of the Luftwaffe and the way in which Germany was was rearming. And so um, the way I think that he uh, was able to be the first person, and for a long time the only person who warned against uh, Hitler and the Nazis, was in part because of uh, what you mentioned, his philo-Semitism. He had an early warning system when it came to Hitler and the Nazis that were denied was denied to many of the anti-Semitic uh, people of his race and, and class and background uh, and age in, um, in, on the backbenches of, uh, of the Conservative Party, and indeed of every party in the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. You also had um, this very much sense of him seeing Hitler in his, um, as part of the historical continuum of hegemonic um, threats to the European continent, and um, so he did see him uh, as being a, a danger in the same way that Philip II of Spain had been a danger, and uh, and uh, Louis XIV had been a danger. Of course, the person who had been stymied by his own great ancestor, the Duke of um, Marlborough, in the wars mm-hmm. of Austrian succession, Spanish succession, and then um, Napoleon, who he admired, but did also see as uh, as a great uh, danger and a threat to uh, Britain. And, of course, um, the Kaiser, and he had fought in the trenches himself, gone into no man's land 30 times, commanded a battalion, so you know, he didn't need any, um, any warnings about that either. And so he saw Hitler, therefore, in the, in the great sort of panoply of, of um, threats to Britain. And he, he, was, he was shocked, really, and surprised that nobody else was willing to, uh, uh, to see him like that as well. Uh, which um, and Cam, I'm just going to ask an, another question real quick. I know we're getting near the end here, but um, just in general, not that I'm trying to wrap things up, but just in general, uh, one question is: Why are we still talking about Churchill? Was it because he was a great speaker, a great writer, because he represents um, fighting against incredible odds? He was a, a light of hope in a very dark time for Western civilization or, or world history. What is it about this man that just seems to either fire the imagination in a good or bad way? Because like you were saying earlier, he certainly does have his detractors and he certainly made mistakes and was honest about it. But what is it about this man that just seems to, it's something that we just can't let go, that we don't want to let go? Well, I think, uh, I think you've mentioned five jolly good reasons there uh, already, um, but uh, there are a few more others as well. I think that um, uh, however much uh, we are told not to believe in heroes um, and, uh, and the, um, the education system tells us not to and the determinists and Whigs and Marxist historians tell us not to, uh, nonetheless, uh, there is something, there is part of the human condition that still believes that there are exceptional people. And, uh, and Winston Churchill, I think, is generally accepted uh, to have been one of them. That's another reason we're interested. The second one is the way in which his physical, extraordinary physical courage uh, was allied to a moral courage as well, in that he did carry on. We were talking about the first two stuff now. He did carry on saying these unacceptable things um, again and again and, and didn't really care what opinion polls said or what anybody else said, really. Um, 
He, uh, he never used any focus groups. He never used any spin doctors. He always dictated his own speeches. Mm. So you knew that they came from him. And there was a moral courage, I think, therefore, that is something that is not going to date. Um, you, we need that in our statesmen just as much today as we ever did in the, in the uh, early part of the 20th century. So I'm, uh, I'm, I, I feel that there are all sorts of things. We haven't even mentioned his extraordinary sense of humor. He's an incredibly <laughs> funny man, very witty man. And that also is, of course, something that it's nice to see in, uh, in uh, historical characters and certainly in, um, in biographies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you can have a good, good laugh on top of everything else. So I think you have these uh, various things that all come together, including, of course, this sense of destiny of his, which is, you know, which we've said at the beginning that we don't believe in for ourselves, but he certainly believed in for him. And, um, and we can't escape the fact that 50 years after he said he was going to save London, save the country, um, he did. <laughs> and so, you know, the last laugh's on him, really, as it were. Right. So um, you mentioned the moral courage and his his uh, bon mots, if you like, are full of examples of intolerance, vulgarity, chauvinism, narcissism, prejudice. In many ways, uh, he reminds me of Donald Trump, but then he has the intelligence and the wit and the sense of humour and the gravitas that maybe uh, Trump doesn't get uh, credit for. But how do you think he would uh, get along with somebody like Trump? And how do you think Trump will be remembered 50 years from now? Well, it's always very difficult, of course, to, um, to put Winston Churchill, who died over half a century ago, into modern-day politics. And Mary Soames, Churchill's daughter, told me never to assume that one knows what Winston would do in any uh, situation. So... Um, with regard to Donald Trump, who I, um, <laughs> I must have exception to your equating his, their, their personalities. The, the day that Donald Trump um, writes 37 uh, books and wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, I will allow <laughs> you that, but until then, I'm not going to. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, but I think that, um, that um, there, are, there are things that... Um, in politics, you know, which I think Churchill would have been very good at. For example, Twitter. I think he would have tweeted <laughs> extremely well. Many of his best jokes are, uh, can be summed up in 280 characters or fewer. And uh, his way in which he dealt with hecklers and so on uh, were very often extremely quick, extremely crushing remarks, which I think would, um, would, would, would come out very well on Twitter. Do you have a favourite uh, bon mot of his? I do, actually, yes. It was when his uh, private secretary, Jock Colville, told him that, uh, their, that um, their cook had been made pregnant as a result of a nocturnal assignation with a man in the street in Verona. And uh, Winston Churchill immediately replied, obviously not one of the two gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Well, um uh, I, I think it's probably about time to wrap it up, um, and uh, I apologise for the technical difficulties. Thank you for your patience, and uh, congratulations on the book. Uh, certainly a, a very enjoyable read, and um, I thank you for all of the uh, time you spent putting it together for those of us that are still fascinated by characters like uh, your former Prime Minister. Thanks very much indeed, Cameron, and uh, thank you, Ray. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, Well, despite uh, some technical difficulties, which hopefully you've edited Mm -hmm. out of the final show, um, very enjoyable chat with Andrew, uh, lovely erudite gentleman, very, very fast on his feet. What did you think of all that? Yeah, I think maybe uh, doing four years of research on Churchill has rubbed off on him because I watched a lot of YouTube interviews and read this book, and he is very quick with the comebacks, so so good for him, but I certainly... uh, Enjoy that. And you do probably do get a sense of what it's like to talk to Churchill, who could fire something right back at you even before you're ready. So uh, a great conversationalist. And of course, this isn't the first book he's written about Churchill. He's written um, quite a few books about Churchill before different aspects of Churchill's uh, career. But this is the first sort of standalone major biography. Um, Did 
reading his book and chatting with Andrew uh, alter your view on Churchill in any way? Um, it, it did, and I don't. This might not have been his goal, but um, I think I understand Churchill a lot better. Whereas I, you know, because like you were saying, you have your beefs with him, but I think it helped me to accept Churchill. For the for the person that he was, the, the, considering that the time he was born in, the class that he was born into, uh, British culture at the time, I don't think he could have been anything else. And when people try to judge him by maybe different standards, it falls apart. But I'm not saying that I'm more accepting of Churchill's weak points or his uh, for his failures. But I think I understand them better. And he was just being himself. And I think sometimes when you have a hero or someone who's potentially a hero, you try to hold them to a high standard, but he was a flawed human after all. And I was glad that Andrew uh, acknowledged that, um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm happy with that. You know, I, as you know, I'm happy to look at all of these people as flawed right. humans. I don't buy into the pure evil or, uh, version right. of guys like Stalin or Hitler, and I don't buy into the pure goodness and light right. uh, version of guys like Us. Churchill right. or, or Napoleon or well of us of course we are <laughs> but but that wonderful wonderful human but, beings but that whole fate or destiny thing even though he used that as the title of his book because it was a quote from Churchill I think a very I think it's going to show that you know like he said in the interview that um, he didn't believe in it himself and just because someone believes in it doesn't make it real but it certainly does uh, influence the way they act or the way they react to events. And, and I think that showed consistently with Churchill. Yeah. Well, as you know, I believe in destiny. I believe it's all atoms, man. And the laws of physics. Man. In that yeah, sense. Yeah. That destiny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, well, but I mean then, like, that yeah, mean? that you're, that you're meant to do something specific, like save your country or, or whatever like that. Hmm. Well, it's certainly fascinating that from a very early age, he believed that was what he was going to do. And as, uh, you know, Alexander and Caesar and Napoleon and lots of these guys had that Mm -hmm. same sort of sense, uh, we believe, uh, from what the histories tell us from an early age. So, yeah, fascinating. All right. But maybe I'm sure Donald Trump did too. I'm sure he's always known that one day he'd uh, be president of the United States. So um, 50 years from now, he'll probably be doing... uh, well, I think 50 yeah. years from now, Andrew Roberts will have written a major biography on Trump and we'll, we'll have him back on. <laughs> um, well, and the other part of that is Churchill, a lot like Caesar, wrote history. So, yeah, uh, history is going to be kind to you or, or at the very least you're going to be in it a lot more if you're the one producing your own propaganda, uh, your own source material. So I think they had that in common as well. And Trump has tweeted his own history. So I'm sure that <laughs> Exactly. <laughs>